Hi, Guy here. Welcome to Creative Forces. Thanks to the thousands of you that have listened and downloaded the podcast so far. Uh, the numbers just keep on growing and it's fantastic to see uh, so many people listening and hopefully enjoying the interviews. Uh, the latest one, this one, Priya Lakani. She's the founder and chief executive of the cloud-based education platform Century. Now, Priya's had a fascinating career path. She trained as a lawyer, but quit the legal profession uh, in 2008 to set up her own Indian cooking sources brand, Masala Masala. Within weeks, she was being stocked by the biggest, uh, some of the biggest retailers in the country, and it went on to be a huge success. Alongside that business, she also had a charity which provided a hot meal to a homeless person in, in India for every pot of sauce sold. And she got an OBE in recognition for that success in 2014. She gave up being the boss of that company, though, to set up a new company, Century, the one that she's running right now. And you can hear all about um, how Century works using artificial intelligence in education in this really fascinating interview. Priya also explains how she developed her really uh, her entrepreneurial skills at a really young age with her brother, um, she also talks about the importance of her parents and grandparents and what they instilled in her in terms of uh, her desire to give money, to, to donate to charities and to help other people. She also talks about why having a dog in the office is beneficial. And just to let you know that she did do this interview in her office, which was pretty noisy <laughs> at times. So bear with it. There's some door slamming. There's some chatting in the background. But there's also some fascinating insight uh, into her life and career. I just wanted to start by asking you, because just before we started doing the interview, we were chatting with the, the visuals, and uh, I saw that there's a dog wandering around in your office. So just tell me about the dog. The dog, yes, it's Chewy, and he is a core member of the Century Tech team. So he's, um, <laughs> he's a, yeah, it's a dog-friendly office. We um, actually one of our um, engineers brought in a dog about a year and a half ago, and I sort of looked at this dog in the office and I thought, what's happening? There's a dog because you know prior to all of this, I was a lawyer, and that just doesn't happen in uh, in law firms. Mm. And um, they were saying, well, it's a tech company, you know, we're allowed dogs. <laughs> so I thought, oh, okay, better get used to this. But actually, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, the, the presence of the dog, everyone seems to enjoy the presence of the dog. And I thought, well, I've always wanted one. So actually, I've got a dog too now. And mm -hmm. he comes every single day. That's Chewy. And then we have Arky. And sometimes there's a dog called Chance who also turns <laughs> up. Um, so yeah. so there's yeah. a whole load of them. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of it's maximum, right, a couple, because I think what you can't have is a doggy daycare going on in the office. They're, no. they're, they're very well behaved, and they actually have very special dog licenses in the building. Right. Um, so as part of our office negotiation, when they said there's no pets, we just said, well, hang on a second. <laughs> and so Chewy has a doggy license for the Heels building in London, right. uh, where he's allowed in, and not many other dogs are. So it's, um, yeah, but it, it's actually, it is actually great for the work environment. We looked into it quite a lot, and... It's not a distraction. Um, mm. What we find is that it is actually really therapeutic. People really, really love, you know, I mean, it's, it doesn't happen very often, but they'll often, you know, either take him for a walk for a few minutes um, because they need a break or they'll come and play with him. It's just the environment is so much nicer. So mm. if anyone's thinking about it, I do recommend it. So it definitely, you think, has a positive effect on people working in the office? I know it has a positive effect in our in our office, and I think that that's also to do with the temperament of the dogs. Yeah, um, it's also flexibility from the owners. You know, so um, you know we're obviously careful if somebody doesn't 
you know, like the dog or if um, there's a visitor or someone who says they're allergic or whatever it is, you know, we, we're very sensitive to that. But mm. but on the whole, it is a really, really positive experience. They're quite quiet, you know, mm. and they, they know that it's office time when they come in. It's really interesting. They just go to their area and sort of lie down. Um <laughs> And then they will they have their walks. But I think it, it is great. And things people comment that it's great and they comment that the atmosphere is much nicer. So um all the feedback tells me that it is a it has been a very, very positive decision. And is it Chewy uh short for Chewbacca? He is, yes, he is. I mean he's a lot blonder than Chewbacca. He is very hairy. <laughs> not quite as big as Chewbacca either, but <laughs> he's not I... quite as big. Yeah, I'm not sure I could have caked for that, but uh, he's um yeah, he's a he's a very small, cute version of um of Chewbacca. He's a lot blonder. Um but yeah, it's because we actually chose a, a darker dog um mm. initially, but then um we didn't get him in the end because the owner chose um, to move a bit quicker and just go with someone who turned up at a door. So we ended up with a blonde one, but my kids fell in love with the name. So here we are. Does that mean that you and the kids are big Star Wars fans? We are huge Star Wars fans, actually. I think um, my kids are only six and eight, so mm. in the last three years, um, I am a huge Star Wars fan, and I made them Star Wars fans because right. then when we watch Star Wars, <laughs> I can blame them. And when we buy all that paraphernalia and we have lightsabers in the house and BB-8s <laughs> that kind of roll around and are you know, sound-sensitive... Um, I blame my children for that. You know, I, people come into our house and I say, oh, goodness, you know, it's full of all this stuff. And it doesn't look like an adult household, but actually it's uh, my obsession. <laughs> 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 and I love it when parents do that. They sort of encourage their children, you know, into a certain direction. But yeah, we, we all love it. I mean, you know, there's not many people who don't. They're absolutely no. amazing. And, and given where they started and what they're about, mm. um, actually being in the tech industry is really interesting because when you watch those films, the old ones, you just start to really appreciate how creative these people were mm. um you know with the with the type of technologies that are used in those films um in terms of you know what they're trying to represent and where we are today with artificial intelligence it's really it's actually really interesting mm. um the fact that these ideas came up so long ago so mm. yeah i mean I, I like all of that as well but i also like the very fun element of you know watching um ewoks run around <laughs> yeah <laughs> We'll talk in a minute. I'll ask you in a minute about Century, about the, you know, you are working in technology now. That is your business. But does a, does some of your inspiration for being involved in technology come from your love of films like Star Wars, do you think? Um, do you know, it's really interesting. I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the answer is no. Um, and that's unusual for it. I know. I, I, whenever I, I'm asked that sort of a question and I say, no, people look at me really strangely saying, how are you leading an AI company? Mm. And, you know, your answer about being frankly inspired by technology in all sorts of walks of life and um, have not inspired you to build this. And um, what's, what's, what I found with, with just my journey is that um, I've always been interested in film, right? So I'm obsessed with film. I love film mm. um, and it's actually an escape for me. So, you know, you'll find that not all, but many entrepreneurs will say it's quite, it's quite difficult to escape actually. And there's not many minutes of the day when you're awake and not thinking about your work right? right and you're not immersed in what's going on or solving issues and problems or trying to grow and scale and um and i find you know film is actually a really great release because you're in that very immersive experience and you're mm. trying to really focus on what's going on and i find it a lot easier but the the love of um uh, yeah technology that's been a really a real love for it has only really happened mm. since i started running century actually i was just as interested in technology as the next guy when it came to being a consumer before that. So, you know, what apps are available, what phones available, what sound systems, et cetera, et cetera. And I was always fascinated just when you read stories about technology. But um, for me, my journey has been very much about 
just stumbling across problems in life. So, you know, the, one of the first problems I came across was, you know, food. And it was, there was no fresh, there were no fresh ethnic sources in the supermarket. So I decided mm. to create that brand and build that business. Here, I learned about the 1.8 million children underperforming in UK schools. And when you've only got 8.2 million people in the UK, that's nearly 20% of our young people and not mm. achieving the desired levels, um, you know, of maybe literacy and numeracy and other uh, other areas you're measuring in, in our own schools. And so that's a problem that I came across. And in order to solve the problem, I thought, how do we do that? Mm. And so and the only way in my mind, it's not a magic bullet at all, but in which we can help to alleviate these problems is by using technology. So it was very much a I'm focused on solving problems, finding new tools to solve problems. And essentially that's what you you'd call disruption right yeah, yeah. how do we actually disrupt this how do we how, how do we find a better way and technology has just been in a sense this part of the solution so it is a tool um, that we can leverage and use and as it advances you know keeping pace of the advances in technology is actually a really exciting way to try and help solve some of the world's biggest problems mm. and so it's sort of a it's i've grown to really really love it um but it is very much not using or building tech for tech's sake, mm. right? It's um, For me, it's very much the application of it and ensuring that it has a very, very positive impact on whatever it is that you're trying to change. Mm. So just to explain then, what, what exactly is it that Century does? How does it use AI in education? So, so Century is a, um, so it's an online platform that you can access from anywhere. You can access it from a mobile phone, um, tablet, you know, desktop, etc. And... Um, students anywhere in the world can log in and it's content agnostic so you can learn you know a six-year-old could learn maths and english and science um you can have a 16 year old learning you know geography and history you can have um a 20 year old at university um learning law you could also have learning and development in corporate so you can have an employee in a business learning health and safety mm. or um you know the the, the theory behind cpr for a paramedic or something like that so it's content agnostic you log in and you can choose you're given that course by your educator or by your learning manager and you when you're logging in you then you then uh, are greeted by completely algorithmically um, created personalized messages that are all grounded in neuroscience so they're all based in growth mindset using carol dweck's work at stanford university they're all very positive very encouraging and the messages help the student, the learner, to to be engaged and you know to motivate them in their learning, to tell them a little bit about how they're learning. Um, and then the machine gives you, essentially will give you 10 sort of micro lessons, we call them nuggets. Mm. So these 10 nuggets of learning. And the way those 10 nuggets appear is that they're a completely individualized path to mastery. So the machine will track every mouse movement and every click that you make on the machine. And using your patterns and behaviors of, of how you move and what you click on and what you're watching. And it has sort of you know, learning content on there in any of those subjects, um, constant formative assessment. There's some diagnostic and summative assessments on there too. The machine will learn your knowledge, your skills, your gaps in knowledge, your gaps in skills, your focus levels, your effort levels, your pace of learning, your difficulty levels, emotions, preferences, and when something goes from your short-term to long-term memory. And it uses big data and machine learning to do this. So um, just because you've not logged in for a couple of weeks, let's say, and you've not learned your you know, physics GCSE, um, 
the machine is still being affected every nanosecond that anyone else in the world is on the machine, right? Mm. So it's looking at patterns and correlations in behavior. And that's the difference. So you can log in and, you know, bang through multiple choice on most platforms, um, you know, and not trying to point at any sectors, but we know how many adults do that in their, you know, continuing professional development when they've got this, you know, compliance course to do and they just try and sift through multiple choice, mm. pass, never have to do it again, not even watching really what they're doing. You can't do that on Sentry. It knows if you're guessing, hesitating, skipping. You can try and game the system in a clever way if you really wanted to uh, by staring at the screen for a certain period of time and, <laughs> and trying to do that. But I always say, well, if someone's really trying to do that, they're probably at least, you know, looking at the content in some form of, or another and it's sort of getting in there, you know, somehow. And, um, yeah. But essentially, it learns that about you. And then let's say if little Johnny, you know, logs in at some point to learn that physics course. Well, it will it will provide him with exactly what he needs to achieve that mastery level in that topic. But essentially what that means is plugging gaps in knowledge, yeah. identifying that you're great at this skill of recall, but you're yeah. not actually um, proficient enough in the, in the skill of solving problems. So the machine will come up with those questions. Right. It, it doesn't only, I mean, the key thing is that it doesn't identify just if you're struggling, it identifies why. So you know, if, you're, if you're learning velocity in physics and you're, you're actually quite proficient in what velocity is, but you're struggling, the machine might identify that you can't calculate equations in maths. Now, there are not many physics teachers in the country that have time to sit down with one or two students and teach them how to calculate equations in maths mm. in order to help with physics because you're time constrained, you have limited resources and a large class. And so the machine will come up with, A, that knowledge for little Johnny, but it will also, on data dashboards that are all real-time for the teacher, tell the teacher where the problem is, so mm. who to intervene with, how to intervene, and why to intervene. And all of that is done instantly and that was sort of the second part of the issue because the first is all about differentiating and mastery and individualization for the student but the second is you know teachers this is a I mean guy this is a workforce that we should be empowering right and you know three quarters of teachers consider quitting their jobs in the next three years um that's three quarters right so I mean I don't know if you've got kids I do but that is a really that's an incredibly yeah. worrying well, stat. My wife is a teacher, so I can uh, sympathise ah. fully with the... the she yeah. can share the pain, yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, and, and, you know, when you get all these results in you know, August, right, in, in most schools, and, you know, you go through the summer holidays and, and, you know, these results come through. And actually, you know, schools are often dragged through the mud about these results. And actually, I've never met a teacher, it doesn't matter which school they're in, who came to teach badly. Mm. So I just thought, you know, there's something going on here. And actually... It was really interesting of the of the ones that want to quit. This was all done in a, a workload survey conducted by TES. And eighty two percent of the seventy four percent say that data management is their biggest issue. The, the admin involved. And then mm. when there was some further, some further research in admin, I don't know what your wife would say about this, but teachers say that on, on average they spend sixty that's six zero sixty mm. percent of their time on admin. Now no teacher signed up to do that. No. So micro-marking, you know, how um, how many people think that your wife goes home at 3.30 <laughs> and has lovely weekends and yeah. beautiful holidays? Yeah, they don't, holidays. right? <laughs> no, yeah, well, yeah, you became a teacher because, yeah, exactly, and it's just rubbish. You know, they yeah. spend their weekends marking and planning yeah. and, and creating tests. She and all her um, colleagues work exceptionally hard. <laughs> I can testify exactly. to that. Right, and the thing is, actually, these are some of the smartest people in the country, you know, in the world. And so what we should be doing is leveraging them and taking the human of them rather than bogging them down with, frankly, things that a machine can do. And, you know, writing a test 
is one thing, right? So you can write the test. But then, you know, copying that 30 times and then marking 30 versions of that test, 180 in a year group, 939 in the average secondary school, that is not a task you want an incredibly smart person to be doing because mm. that a machine can do. But you want them to create the test essentially because there's a lot of thought about questions, right? What mm. are we testing? What skill is this question actually trying to test? How are we identifying which students have a certain knowledge, you know, certain part of knowledge of, of this subject and which ones don't. And so you want them doing that. But then what you want them doing is actually looking at the data, right? And not in a death by data way. And, mm. you know, just analysis of here are the children who don't understand this. Here are the ones that understand this well. Here are the ones that need further challenge and stretch. Here are the ones that are struggling. This is why they're struggling. That can be done by a machine. That's the whole point of Century. Mm. And, um, you need AI to help with that. You can't just do it with a bog standard uh, machine. It is advanced technology um, mm. that, that you need. Uh, but imagine a teacher having that data right right in front of them. And then what, what your wife would be doing is looking at it and think, instead of spending you know, the majority of that 60% of my time trying to analyze and gather this data and micromark and get it all together, mm. she's spending all of that time on timely targeted interventions. Mm. And She'll feel great because she comes home every day saying, I actually know that I made a marked difference with these particular children because I, I could see what was going on and I fixed it, right? Mm. Or I this child here was bored staring out the window and could really do a stretch and I, I had time to give him or her, you know, that piece of literature and sort of, you know, stretch them. And, that, and that's wonderful, right? Mm. And also the children go home. Um, the ones who were struggling don't feel like, Oh, there's a gap in my knowledge that none of my friends have and I now feel like I don't understand and I'm not good enough and the ones who you know that, that gap's been plugged they're feeling mm. confident and and ideally obviously it's an ideal situation but then the you know you've got the the stretched ones who actually are bored staring out the window and they and they can they can go on and also feel engaged and challenged and so I mean that's 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 everyone's dream mm. and um but today our classroom our classrooms often look like, you know, the first university in the 1600s. I mean, we've still got somebody stood at the front, you know, with instead of a blackboard, we've got a whiteboard. Great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's changed colour. Yeah. And it does a few extra bits and pieces. But the point <laughs> is that, you know, this is the one sector which has been slow, slow, slow to change in a sense. And, it, mm. you know, and, and, for good, and it's not, you know, the technology hasn't really existed for them, which is such a shame. And was it a light bulb moment for you then? Uh, you know, you mentioned you saw this stat that uh, 20% of kids were were struggling or were not fulfilling their potential was it was that that the moment where you decided to get involved in this or was it something that was building for a while yeah it's really interesting so that's the first um no it was, it was a bit of a light bulb moment it wasn't that moment so I was on um, Vince Cable's uh board when he was secretary of state for bits for business innovation and skills mm. uh, and I was very lucky and fortunate to be on that board um and um and, and I learned a lot from it but in one of those board meetings he's actually um you know, I'm apolitical, I'm not going to go into politics here, mm. but what I do know about him, having spent years going in and out of biz and, and, and you know, is that actually he, he's incredibly passionate about um, education and skills. Um, and obviously skills was part of his remit, but both he and Matthew Hancock, so obviously we had the coalition government at that point, mm. um, both Vince Cable and Matthew Hancock, um, we just, you know, it, it, it was something that, they, they, they wouldn't let go and you know they just said actually this is not just an issue for department for education this is very much an issue for us and for the whole country because if we can't improve um literacy numeracy um 
focus on skills. You know, they were very passionate about apprenticeships and you know, vocational studies and technical education. And Matthew Hancock's a, a huge champion of digital and tech mm. and mm. sort of in a sense, but not being naive, right? Because it's coming. <laughs> so <laughs> we actually, and it's here actually, and, mm. and it's just going, getting faster. And so it's actually great to have some people who who really just understand that actually we should embrace it and work with it rather than try and fight against it. Yeah. Um, so they were really passionate about it and they were raising these issues. And uh, and I was just really curious because at the time I had a two-year-old daughter and I was pregnant with my son. Uh, and obviously that was a while ago now. But, um, mm. but that was a stat that just shocked me. And it shocked me because when I was running my food company, Masala Masala, mm. which was that fresh source company in, in supermarkets, what I was doing with the proceeds of Masala Masala and, and with every pot of sauce that we sold is I was feeding a homeless person a hot meal in India, providing vaccines in Africa through the Gavi Alliance and um, the United Nations. And also um, we were building schools and funding schools. Mm. And I thought, well, so I, you know, and I've seen all these schools in these developing countries. And I thought, well, hang on, you know, if I'm doing that there and we can't quite get education right here, what, what is going on? Because mm. if it, you know, it was sort of news to me. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't like I, I didn't understand that, you know, that, that you know we had issues. I just didn't realise it was twenty percent of children. I mean, that's mm. that's a large. That's 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 that was that was shocking to me. I thought, mm. you know, the number would be a lot less. So that happened, and then I was um, I was curious. So I did lots of uh, research, went in and out of schools, and I had no intention of building an AI company. I'm very honest <laughs> about that. You know, there's no point trying to say, oh, yes, I'm some genius who thought this. No, um, I had zero intention. I was very happy doing what I was doing. But Because um, at the time I, you were still running Masala Masala, is that right? Yeah, yeah. This and is the, the food know, business to... that you started, which we'll come to in yeah. a minute. But, so you were still running that at that, that point. So, yeah, what point did you realise that you <laughs> wanted to make the transition from running that company yeah it wasn't yeah it wasn't really a, I, I, so i'm just being honest because i think you know same people are just full of big stories and this is just the truth right so <laughs> did lots of research went into lots of schools found out that it doesn't matter if you're the best performing school in the country mm. or you're an academy of importance or a school that um is uh, needs a lot of um, help and, and improvement um every classroom has a bell curve right every mm. classroom has the children who are struggling the ones who are under challenged um and it's just a, it's so every classroom has that has that problem for the teacher. And then I learned about, you know, I, I was looking and speaking to a lot of people and that the one size fits all doesn't work. We've got to differentiate for every child. Class sizes are getting bigger. There are a growing number of pupils. There are falling numbers of teachers. If we had every teacher stay in education, forget the 74% who want to leave in the next three years. If everybody stayed in their jobs by 2024 in the UK, we would still be short of 40,000 teachers. And that was mm. a stat that came out recently in a really amazing book. Um, and um, I think it was by um, Becky Allen. And um, so Dr. Becky Allen, I should say. So, um, so that, that was, that's, that's shocking. So I saw that, saw the fact that the teachers were, you know, burdened with all this rubbish workload <laughs> frankly mm. they shouldn't be doing and just curious so i asked Vince uh, at the time i said look i'd like to go and do a bit of research and obviously he was just like fine you know it's up to you and i just mentioned it to him um did more thought what about tech um did a nano degree in ai read mm. about 60 journals on how the brain learns and neuroscience and what do we know about children what do we know about how they learn and what do we know about the needs you know, of the child and, and what is education? You know, what's the point of it? You know, we should be providing every child with a whole education, all of that sort of stuff. I came up with a proposition um, because I was walking my daughter home um, from school one day and I was on the high street and I remember exactly where I was. I passed this place every single day. Hmm. And, I, and I just realised what I'd done. I'd picked up my daughter from nursery. She's two, right? Hmm. And I had asked her teacher who came to the gate, you know, what, what's Neve done today? 
And uh, because, you know, I'm in North London yeah. and North London is full of pushy parents. And, <laughs> like, and, uh, and Lou, let's admit it, yeah. we're in this little rug, rug rat race, right? And um, <laughs> nice. it's so true. And actually, and actually we're not now because I've been immersed in education and I absolutely know better than that now. But, um, but you know, I did ask Miss Elaine and Miss Elaine said, well, you know, she played with Play-Doh. Yeah. And I said, well, what should she do with Play-Doh? <laughs> you know? and, and what I'm expecting her to say is, well, she, Priya, yes, she, you know, she built the entire alphabet in 3D in Play-Doh. <laughs> you know, you, you push your Indian mother. Mm. And um, and so I was just asking. Um, and then I realised after me, another mum asked what her child did. And we're, we're supposed to just collect our children, right? <laughs> but we're all asking these questions. So I was walking down the high street just after and I sort of had a bit of a check you know when you just check yourself about something you've just done yeah and i thought and i thought when neve is 16 or 14 or whatever it is i'm not going to collect her from the school gate because she'll think that i'm incredibly uncool <laughs> and it looks <laughs> let's be honest right yeah, i that's mean gonna happen. this side right it's got nothing to do with me she's going to say mom don't collect me from you know whatever and um but then how am i going to know what's going on because i'll know at parents evening and parents evening again you're under time constraint you know you don't have much time with a teacher. So my, so how else am I going to know? And I thought, this is, this is crazy because, because, you know, the, the, I'm going to now ask lots of questions. I'm going to burden the teacher with more questions from what I'm actually seeing as well from, you know, going out to schools and trying to understand what's going on. Actually, what there is, is a real lack of real time uh, information mm. and information that's really useful for a parent. So parents could be more involved in their child's education. Again, you know, it's not about, um, it's not about feeding pushy parents with more and more so they can basically bully their children into doing more work at home. That's absolutely not it. And the whole point is children should be free, you know, to enjoy life um, and fun things. But but actually, a lack of information sometimes does make people and parents feel quite nervous, right, they know what's going on. Um, but, but teachers, right, how can, how can Miss Elaine know when my daughter is older, exactly what's going on with every child, because I'll be 30 of them. Mm. That's impossible. So walking down the high street, I sort of had a bit of a moment, and I thought, you know, we should use technology. And initially, I thought of um, a, a sort of a, you know, a kind of an invo- some sort of technology that might help with parents and teachers and mm. communication. And I quickly thought, no, no, no that's not it, because that's going to burden teachers even more, right? It has to be technology that automatically aids both and all stakeholders right so Mm. it's got to help teachers and parents with understanding what's going on but and and teachers more so because of intervention but it's got to help the child because that's the main stakeholder right that that person has to be at the center of everything and uh, we have to leverage the teacher because the teacher's the most powerful person actually in the classroom they Mm. they can they have that day in day out interaction like you know what your wife does um, with the children in her classroom and so there's always got to be this, you know, idea. And so I basically went away and because I don't sleep very much. <laughs> just, um, you know, typical, again, I'm just being on, you know, I think people like to come up with these great big brand ideas. I mean, I wish actually I did. Mm. Um, m- my life is a lot simpler than that. I just don't sleep very much. So I just spent a long time <laughs> thinking about it and doing these nano degrees and then wrote it down on two pieces of paper, went back into this one day and said, we should build this, a platform that learns how the brain learns. And it's actually not rocket science because this technology exists. There are other businesses and sectors using this and it's advancing those sectors at, you know, a pace that we've seen, which is incredibly fast. Leadership are able to make decisions in those sectors with data, so data-driven decision-making. We can make every classroom um, and every teacher 
um, we can help them to make decisions that are more based on evidence but day in day out mm. you know we can make sure that rather than marking a test and you know getting all the feedback etc cetera, etc cetera, and then finding out two weeks later that little oh. johnny doesn't know what the common denominator is while everyone <laughs> else is multiplying fractions we could find out that second yeah. and that intervention could be made then not two weeks later when it's actually too way too late so all of that kind of came about and then uh, yeah i went to a couple of people in biz and and they'll know who they are and that they were so supportive i cannot describe to you um how uh, you know this little idea of mine and curiosity sort of mm. led to quite a lot of work for them and they said we'd love to support it but obviously with government the, the question is then you know what do we do mm. about this idea and then it's like well do we go through procurement you know what do we do and and, and you know that's yeah. not it's, government, they're quite clear actually some members of government that it's not their place to be building things right it's their place to actually create an infrastructure for the for the economy to thrive and for people to build businesses so procurement wasn't an option and i went home uh, one evening sat down at a dinner table with my husband and you know got a napkin at a restaurant and basically in middlesex which is a random place where we were but um and we were in a, a restaurant in Pinner mm. in Middlesex, and a, um, near my parents' house, actually, and put a line down a napkin and, you know, Masala Masala, the food company, versus Company X. Yeah. He scrubbed, he said, don't call it Masala Masala, yeah. call it Company Y, because if you see that name, it's yeah. like, you know, it's like your baby. So yeah. there's a lot of emotional attachment um, from having built that business that was profit-making from year one and also doing a lot of good in the world. But it's just... We, we sort of wrote down the forecasts of the financials, sort of guessed at them. Missile Missile, we knew well. The tech company was sort of just guessing. Yeah. And then we turned around the napkin, put the line down the middle. And what was really interesting was this was it. So Company Y was actually on the left and Company X was on the right because I'd used, company, I'd used Masala Masala instead. And uh, so I scrubbed that out. And underneath Masala Masala, it said, sell curry sauces, yeah. feed the homeless. And on the other column, Company X, it said, education and i just looked at it and i thought i just had goosebumps i still have goosebumps when i think of that moment i just mm. thought i can't not i don't i trust that we'll build it in an ethical way we will be a social enterprise we will build the best of technology we won't you know not afraid of disruption and innovation at all mm. right that is not I, and i know that so about myself so i thought we can do this um we can also ensure that it's a force for good we can ensure that we don't even publish the website for this thing, even if it takes us t- twenty years, hmm. until we know it has positive impact. Yeah. You know, we don't. You know, we we just going to operate it in that way. And then it was that old adage, you know, instead of giving a man a fish, teach him how to fish. Hmm. I, and I looked at it and thought, well, that's exactly the choice, isn't it? Hmm. You know. Okay. And so, um, and that then that led that then led to Century. I mean, that's amazing because that's the the second as we mentioned, Masala Masala was the first business he set up. <laughs> Century now the second. Were you always entrepreneurial at school? Was that something that you showed an early aptitude for? Yeah, I think for anyone who remembers, oh God, I was terrible at school. I used to sell chomp bars for a profit. So I used to so what, sorry? make chomp. Do you remember oh, chomp? Yeah, the little 10p yeah. bars. Yeah. Yeah, so, yeah 10p bars. So, so you, you can buy, you could buy them for seven pence. Right. At, um, was it Roy Hall? What was the, um, I can't remember what it was called, but it was a, there were a couple of those sort of cash and carry uh, places in, in Manchester that my mm. dad used to go to. And um, I used to go up, go with him and my brother. I've got an older brother, right? Mm. And this is really important because I'm, I was heavily influenced by this older brother of mine. He's three and a half years older than me. And um, he would come up, but to be fair, he would come up with these ideas, right? And he'd say, uh, you know, he would sell chocolate bars first for a profit at his school and I'd just copy him. And so um, 
we buy chump bars and I sell them for a profit and you make three pence. But then <laughs> I realized if I scale to curly ways, I could make six to seven pence per bar. So I did that. And so I think it's even on my LinkedIn profile is that I was sort of a sole trader of chump bars and curly ways for a while. And then uh, my brother got a car um, when he was 17. He got this really sort of old banged up Ford Fiesta. So we're very lucky children mm. because mm. not every 17 year old then gets a, gets a car. And I'm very conscious of that. Um, and he, we were in a really kind of leafy, nice part of Cheshire. Mm. And uh, and he said, you know, he said, well, let's go to this auction in Rochdale mm. uh, in Manchester. So we'd rock up to this auction house and there were these sort of old white men with caps on. <laughs> and then these two little Indian kids would rock up, right? And... Um, and we would uh, and we would bid in the auction house, and, and, and what they were selling was um, new, unsold Costco stock. Right. Mm. So whenever Costco wasn't selling at that season, they would just throw into these auctions, and uh, we would go and buy them. We buy camcorders, video cameras, watches, tag oil watches specifically, mm. uh, paddling pools when it was summer, and we'd store them in my parents' garage. And then we would go to Costco, and because I was a bit sweeter looking than him, you know, little girl, I would go and stand near the camcorders. And if someone w- wanted to buy one, I'd say, excuse me, I've got one in the back of my car. <laughs> and <I would> make- <laughs> have, you ever, have you ever told Costco about this? I'm sure they now know. <laughs> so, uh, I, I'm very honest about this. And um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, they should, you know, if they, if, if they ever want a sort of a non-exec, he's like, you know, an innovation person, then, you know, that's me. And so anyway, it was just really funny. And then that sort of, been, you know, in our little, like, you know, village or community of people who knew it. So mm. my brother was Del Boy and I was Rodney. <laughs> and that's what they sort of, my, you know, my dad used to call us that all the time. And um, we used to actually make quite a lot of cash. And then I used to invest it in shares and sort right. of... Uh, track the stock market i really enjoyed that i've always enjoyed that and that's part of my life that i just think i've not got enough time to do i just really enjoy it um i really enjoy um looking at the markets and and uh and so i used to do that as a kid and because it was illegal for me to buy shares i'd get my mum to go into barclays bank at the time because in at that that point that's where you bought um your stocks and shares and she'd go in and and buy shares and then we made a lot of money when we bought manchester united shares and I can, you know, I can the imagine. Flotation, yeah, back in the yeah, early, early the, 90s, wasn't it? Glazer bought them. Um, yeah. Malcolm Glazer. And, uh, yeah, we had a lot. We, my brother and I had a lot of stock, so, mm. and we were very young. So that was great. And so, but, I mean, I used to always plug this money into, you know, sort of sponsoring kids in Africa or doing really charitable things. Every other month I was doing some sort of raise for mm. charity, you know, and uh, because my whole, my childhood was spent with lots of summers and winters, in East Africa right. and since I was very very young uh, and I specifically remember a moment when I was about six years old um, but I I decided being you know from seeing poverty that I didn't want to see it anymore and I just thought um, this is no longer someone else's problem this is mine and I'm going to change it and so from a very young age I said to my parents I'm going to change the world and that's what I want to do <laughs> <laughs> they just you know just kind of rolled their eyes at me and said whatever and carried on no but actually they were very supportive and, and actually a lot of it's from them because right. my parents incredibly philanthropic and um so what what did they do well well it's really interesting because they're east african indians and they're entrepreneurs so my dad ran factories he um uh he ran factories in liverpool um he ran a wines and spirits sort of wholesaler he's run sort of uh, you know just like all sorts of businesses that are you know i mean so many and he's a true entrepreneur so i've sort of been and these were businesses he founded he founded. Yeah. He's done very well. Yeah, he did very well. But I mean, he's also suffered through very difficult times. And and I've seen, I've seen that. You know, I've seen 
those you know those 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 evenings when he comes home at sort of midnight and, and actually I was sort of awake and you, know, you can hear I mean you know we should be realistic about these things not everything is glamorous right and you know as children we I mean you'll remember when you were a child and everyone does it there are, you know, there are moments that are not so glamorous, and mm. and and that those those moments are the moments that really shape children, right? And um, and I remember those, and I remember when actually, you know, once he was going through a really, you know, difficult, really difficult time, and he said, "Oh, um, you know, he was on the phone with somebody, and uh, and I remember hearing that he was donating a lot of money um, to uh, a charity somewhere, you know, I think it was in India." Um, to fund the radiators in some part of this part of India that gets cold, whatever, mm. so that they could feed people and, and, and you know educate. And I remember going to my dad and saying, "But dad, you know, and because he just recently, obviously, told me that I couldn't have something that I wanted, you know, spoil <laughs> a little child or whatever." You know? And it's, I'm just being, you know, he told me obviously you can't because we can't afford that mm. right now, and and that was it. And, and I and I thought, well, we thought we can't afford anything, yeah. and he yeah. just said to me, you know, look at where we live look at where we are you know we are incredibly privileged and yes things are difficult but we're not going through the type of difficulty that these people are and there is always space mm. to try and help others and that was that was his very natural response to my very innocent you know questions mm. and so i looked at that and thought right and and you know and they've embodied that since i was a child um and, and it's not and, and you know the, the point to stress here is not through when things are going great, right? It's through when I can see and sense from even the environment because children, children sense these things. So yeah. tough, really, really tough. And um, and so I guess all of that has had a huge. My grandparents are the same, by the way. My grandparents also. I remember really difficult times with them, and, and they also constantly giving, 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 yeah. um, and helping us. And and my parents have always said it doesn't matter you know, where they're from, where, you know, what people look like, you know, they've always instilled that in us. It's just, you know, it's one world, right? Where does that one come from, from them, do you think? Why do, why are they so committed to that idea of, of giving to others? You know, that's a, it's such a good question because I've never really, I've never really asked them, but but my grandparents are similar, both both sides, because um, I've seen them too, um, you know, be that way. So for my parents, all I can assume is that, well, they grew up with my grandparents, mm. so they probably saw that. But they've been, you know, they're they've got a really strong work ethic, um, and uh, which is which has been amazing, and that's taught me a lot. I mean, I, do, I think things are different; they're faster paced and more competitive today. But mm. you know, the way my dad used to work and my, my mum, you know, in the warehouses, sort of just standing there until goodness knows what time, and going to cash and carries at five o'clock in the morning when they, you know, when they open to open a shop at eight or nine o'clock in the morning, but then also running factories and, you know, creating, my dad was an industrial chemist and, Mm. um, you know, doing all of that for sort of like the big farmers and supermarkets and, you know, and all the pressure that that involves as well. Um, You know, I can see that work ethic in my grandparents too. So so Mm. I think there's just quite a lot of, um, yeah, maybe in the family, maybe just where they were brought up. My mum was uh, born in Ginger in uh, Uganda. My father's from uh, Nairobi in Kenya. Mm. Um, and and obviously they grew up in um, every single day in the environment that I found that was so shocking when I was a child. Um, my dad's also very, very ambitious. I mean, right. he, yes. And that, that, I mean, you know, that's undeniable in my family. Uh, he is one of the most ambitious uh, people, entrepreneurial people that I've 
I've just ever, and I'm now in that environment with founders all day, every day, right? Mm. Um, he is, you know, since I was a child, uh, he's always said to us, you know, reach for the stars, and if you hit the clouds, then you're okay. Or like, mm-hmm. you know, don't accept, you know, he's always said these little things to us, like, don't accept second best. Mm. Uh, and anyone tells that you can't, you know, you know, just just take the feedback, but then keep on going and don't listen to them. And you know, he he's, he's instilled all of that, um, which is really great because when I was school, you know, I was pretty much told that I wasn't very bright. <laughs> anyway, they who who in, told you, know, you that? My teachers at the time. I mean, a couple of them, not all of them. I remember these two, these two teachers. I'm still trying to find one of them. She's a missing teacher, Miss right. um, Searle. Um, he was my chemistry teacher and Miss Delves. I remember both of them at different times taking me aside saying, you know, you are really bright and don't listen to what the schools tell. I was at a grammar school, so mm. it was very, very pushy. And, you know, I wasn't quite fitting in the mould. And um, and I was really being told off by a few people. And I was like, you can't study this subject. You're not good enough. They've so why, something why do you me. think they told you, know, you that? Oh, who knows? You know, I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. I mean, my, you know, my grade books weren't that terrible. And um, mm. I was just... Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know. I mean, at the time, I was children are so easily influenced, right? So I used mm. to take everything at face value to say, right, okay, so that's what they've told me, therefore that must be true. Mm. And then I'd go home and say, well, I'm not good at maths. And obviously, what's really funny about that, right, is that obviously no child should think they're not good at maths, and mm. it's actually not true, right? And this is actually a real problem in society, right? So I'd go home, <laughs> the, the comedy value of that is that you tell Indian parents you're not good at maths, and they look at you really strangely and think, but it's in our DNA. <laughs> <laughs> really funny and you know they just confused right whereas actually but what I have learned actually even just being in education and and I'm sure your wife will be aware of this and and you are I mean most people are is that we all have learned about this growth mindset and the fact that we should be encouraging children and sort of asking them to spot you know how they can improve and take agency in their own learning um but what I've seen with some some other parents so my generation of parents is that some children will go home and say oh, you know, mummy or daddy or whoever, I'm, I'm not very good at maths. And what's really interesting is some people respond with, don't worry, darling, neither am I, mm. and you got that from me. All right, that's just not true. <laughs> you don't get that from your parent. It's not It's not contagious. It's not <laughs> hereditary. It's just, it doesn't. <laughs> and, and, it's, and it's really, but, but that's the problem that we have in mm. society in terms of this sort of anti-growth mindset is that, is that us parents and guardians really need to understand and learn that, mm that we shouldn't be trying, to, we shouldn't be reinforcing that with our children. My parent, I mean, with me, I was told that at school by, I don't know, you know, these teachers for whatever reason, it was in my reports. Um, and Miss Delves and Miss Sell came to me and said, you can actually do really, really well. Because once you set your mind to something, you know, and I remember one of them saying to me, she said, once you set your mind to something, Priya, you're unstoppable, <laughs> right? I'll never forget. That's where nice I advice. That. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. And that's, I remember that and I'm 37 Yeah. and I remember that and I'm having a bad day running <laughs> a leading artificial intelligence company in education mm. that my physics teacher said that. So, I mean, there, I mean, you know, there are two rooms at Century, two meeting rooms and I called them the Dell's room and the Silver room right. because those two people said that to me, probably for them, honestly, kind of, you know, a small comment, just pull this child aside and just tell her, yeah. I just think, you know, she's, she's fine, she's great, she'll do well. They have no idea that those two moments in my life have shaped so much of what I've done. And I, and I mean, I'm not saying every other teacher was, was terrible, they weren't at all, but, mm. but I was definitely pulled into the library at one point and they had this, uh, this computer and they sort of typed in various inputs. I can't actually remember what exactly those inputs were. They were either your grades or your 
I don't know if I did a test. Like, I mm. can't remember what the inputs were, but I remember what the output was. <laughs> and it was a potential career that you should consider. Mm. And mine said plumber and librarian. <laughs> and right. I, remember, I remember looking at that. Nothing against plumbers. And I mean, plumbers probably own more than I do, but yep. plumbers and, and nothing against librarians. But, you know, is that what we do? Is that what we used to do to our children? Yeah. Is You know, we used to type in something. And this is where technology can be really dangerous, right? Mm. Because... You know, how can you do that to a child? And I always kind of give this, um, I learned this from a head teacher of ours um, now. And it's this, you know, that you put a flea in a cup. If a flea flies into a cup, a flea will fly out of the cup. But if a flea flies into a cup and you put a lid on that cup for, you know, about four or five seconds and the mm. flea looks up and sees the lid, the fl- and you take the lid off, the flea will never fly out of that cup again because mm. it thinks that that's the ceiling, that's, that's, that's it for them. And it, and it will die. And, and I just think, you know, we put a cap on our children's aspirations when mm. we tell them that this is all you can do. Mm. And so part of our mission um, and, and working with our schools is to ensure that, you know, actually that, that we provide this sort of, you know, a whole round of, you know, wholesome education to these children. That teachers are freed up so they're not stressed out, running around, tearing the hair out, because that also gives a very negative vibe in a classroom. I mean, how is it? How is a child supposed to feel positive um, when the teacher is really stressed out? So, anyway, all of this kind of, you know, it, it's all part of the story, really. And um, yeah, it's something that obviously we're trying to. Yeah. With all that entrepreneurial spirit, then that you showed at school, how did you then? end up doing law because you ended up you started your professional career in libel law didn't you so how did how because it sounds like you really were on course to start a business with your brother so how did you end up you know (laughs) studying law yeah no i love my brothers a bit but i think we can yeah we can be we're fine for about 90 minutes (laughs) (laughs) about about the amount of time a football match takes and then um, and then it's and then it's over and no we're um uh so, so in terms of that well because when I was um, young, I thought, well, I want to change the world. And what do most children think in terms of a career that's going to be fair and just and change the world, right? I thought law. And um, because that just, you know, it's sort of in the title and in the meaning of why why we have this entire um, this entire sort of sector in his career. And so, I, I, so I just looked into that and I was really fascinated by it. But what I actually really loved about it was um, being a barrister. I wanted to be a barrister. I wanted to... I love the advocacy side of things. Mm. Um, and so I looked at that. But I was told that there's no way I'd ever be a barrister. Um, and I'd never um, get into, I'd never be able to read law. Um, so there was a big battle with my school in terms of signing my UCAS form. Um, but my, my dad was just absolutely brilliant. You know, he stormed into school and said, you know, you've got to sign her UCAS form. And my head of sixth form said, no, Mr. Nakani, I don't think that's a very good idea. You know, she's not going to get it. And then, you know, I remember being told, well, you know, girls, um, ethnic minorities who aren't going to Oxford don't really become barristers. Um, and that's sort of, I'm a bit of a rebel, I suppose, and that sort of spurred me on a little bit more. But, um, but my father just, you know, sort of demanded they sign it. They didn't. And then he, he walked in one day and said, I'm going to call Anne Robinson from Watchdog. <laughs> so, <laughs> nice. That's one way to do it. Yeah, and so they just like right, we're set up with him now. So they signed it, and um, anyway, and that, that's sort of all history now. And um, yeah, did that for a few years, and it was great, but it wasn't quite as well changing as I'd hoped mm. uh, in terms of what I was doing. I really enjoyed it. I have to say, if I ever retired, I'd retire as a libel and privacy barrister for free right. um, because it was it is an amazing job. It's just uh-huh. that it wasn't quite, you know. I, I really wanted to make it 
a step change difference for those children that I'd seen as a child. And so, um, how long did you do it for? Four years. Hmm. And then four years, very junior. Um, but but a lot of fun. (laughs) So you enjoyed it, but you were, it wasn't what you were looking for really. You Um, didn't get out of it what you hoped. I mean, I think it was just also the fact that I got a bit frustrated at times um, because I constantly wanted to fix things hmm. um, that I wasn't supposed to be fixing. So I worked at a NewsQuest media group at one point hmm. and, um, and I remember just the CFO calling me into his office and I thought I was going to be fired um, because I thought I must have let something through one of the papers that they're being sued on. And he, I sued about, and he just said, um, uh, he just said, oh, you know, would you ever consider a, a management training scheme? Um, to run a newspaper. Mm. <laughs> so I just sort of looked at him thinking, that's bizarre. You know, what are you talking about? I'm a lawyer. And he just said, well, you know, just so you know, that that, that might be a good career path for you. And then I quit the next week because right. I thought, well, if you, if you think I can do it, I'm pretty sure I can run my own company. <laughs> wow. So it was that quick. It was just from that conversation that you thought, right, yeah. actually, I'll do this myself. And I think it's just the confidence that I need. And I had um, an idea and the idea was obviously a fresh food idea. Yeah. Um, but I... I had honestly just didn't. Uh, and again, I think entrepreneurs have to be honest because we love nice stories. I didn't have the balls to do it mm. because I was, I was thinking about it and about to do it. But you know how you just delay, mm. you delay it. And it's your first time I was going to do it. So I am um, to start a business. So I, I was sort of thinking about it a lot and you can get stuck in that paralysis um, over analysis, right? So you can get stuck in there. How much do I actually need to know before I leap into this? And actually when he said that, it just gave me the confidence. And I thought, you know, it sounds very cliche, but mm. I'm going to leave um, law to go and start a curry sauce company. Mm. And that's, that's where we were. So how how long were you, were you thinking about that for a while um, in parallel with the law career? Were you, had you started working on Masala Masala? Yeah, so I was working on it for about a year. Mm. Um, that's what I mean by paralysis over analysis. <laughs> so, um, so every other Saturday or Sunday, I go to the British Library. Um, and if anyone doesn't know this, as they're listening, the British Library has um, the Business and IP Centre, and uh, the one in London is in King, King's Cross, at Pancras. And um, they have an entire library for the Euromonitor and sort of keynote resources. They're free. If you go online to try and, I mean, I'm not doing these companies any favours now, but if you um, if you go online and try and buy these market reports, they cost thousands, thousands of pounds, yeah. and that was out of my, my reach. So I'd go there and I'd study the markets. I'd go and see the markets, see what's going on. I'd go to, I mean, this is literally not even sort of thinking I might leave, but not quite taking the plunge. Um, and uh, and just having fun with it. It's like a hobby for me, right? Just this is an idea. I know it'd be great, but again, not quite ready to leap. And um, going around and asking people questions. And what I learned also, it's really a learning curve. It's, you know, experience is, is, is the most important part of your life in such a sense. You learn things actually by doing. And I'd mm. ask 10 people, and eight people would say, don't be ridiculous. That's such a silly idea. <laughs> you know, and, if, and, and you know, why would you want to quit your career and do that? That's cr- Because if it was such a good, and this is what you hear all the time, if it was such a good idea, then, you know, um, Associated British Food or Kerry Foods, yeah. they would have come up. Someone else would have done it already. Yeah, it's the same with Century. You know, oh, if that was such a good idea, then Google would have done it already. Well, Google's great and massive, but mm. they can't do everything. No. And also, you know, and it's such a nuanced product, right? And that's the key. And so so, so that was also a learning curve. Um, it's dealing with naysayers. And I'd already had that at school. I'd had that through my legal career. I was getting that, I was being laughed out of the door by manufacturers and suppliers starting the food company. 
you know, um, it's interesting because right behind me, I've got one of my investors who's come for lunch and mm. um, he will know, um, he's amazing, but he will know also that with this particular idea, you know, we've been laughed out of the door by other investors because mm. they also say, well, you're not a techie and you can't code. But not every CEO of a tech company, well, in fact, when you're CEO of a tech company, you're not coding unless there's only two of you. Mm. And so it's really, really interesting that you get you know, I think in order to encourage, for example, other people in business, what you have to remember is that there are always the naysayers. Mm. And it doesn't mean that they're full of rubbish, they're not. You've got to take all the feedback that you can that's sometimes even, you know, framed in a very negative way and try and take as much use of it as you can and be agile and constantly adapt approach. But at the end of the day, you've got to continue with conviction. You know, if you if you fundamentally believe that you've got a fantastic idea and that you can implement and execute, etc., then you just you, you continue with it. And I think that that's that. And you know, on the question about my parents, I think that they've certainly throughout my entire life taught me to do that. So mm. I'm very very fortunate. Brilliant. Now, I'd just like to finish by asking you three questions that I ask everybody who uh, comes on. Sure. So the first one is: Do you have um, a, a routine that you go through in the morning to get yourself ready for the day? Are there certain things that you have to do <laughs> a routine in to the get morning. yourself ready? Oh. Um, let me be really honest because it's going to be uh, (laughs) I could make something up and it would sound really slick (laughs) no I mean last night I got home at well this morning I got home at 2 in the morning right so uh, I don't think there is a routine with entrepreneurship I mean I know some people will say I get up at 5 o'clock in the morning and I go to the gym for 2 hours and then I, you know, I, I get my kids up and we, you know, we go for a pleasant walk and do mindfulness and then we go to school or something like that. Yeah. No, um, I get up in the morning, um, you know, just get ready super fast, get <laughs> see my kids, give them kisses, ensure they know that I love them because I feel guilty every day yeah. because that is the constant dilemma that um, I think every mother and a lot of fathers um, have to deal with is mm. the fact that we work really hard and we do actually fundamentally know we know that this is a great you know it's great and you're being a great role model for your children but you've got that guilt of course you do and mm. um, so I try and make sure that they know that I love them dearly mm. um, I have you know no and then I just get I just you know I'm on my phone I do get on my phone I'm one of these people who sort of don't look up you know and I think I've got, this, I've got this other sense not to bang into people as I walk up you know to the chief station and now when I got on with my day and sometimes I'm going up earlier because I'm going to some different part of the country um just to go and see a school and um, see them implementing our technology which is always wonderful because I'm meeting teachers and I'm meeting children and and you're out there and you can see your product in you know in real life you can see it, you see it mm. being used and seeing people be excited about it which mm. is absolutely amazing but yeah there's nothing glamorous about <laughs> my morning i'm really sorry and i don't eat breakfast because i don't have time that all makes um, sense by the way you mentioned yeah. that you don't have a lot of sleep how much sleep do you reckon you get a night uh yeah it sort of varies about i mean today not much you know because I, I do the world news so mm. when i do that they collect you at 3 30 in the morning oh, this is for the bbc so that's um and i do that twice a month which mm. is i love it but it's um yeah it's only twice a month i mean can vary from sort of not very often four hours some sort of six but i'm very fortunate because i've got a lovely husband who lets me lie in on the weekends oh, sometimes and uh, it, yeah the kids wake you up anyway so the thing <laughs> is, it doesn't quite work um but um yeah it, it, but it's fine I, I, I wouldn't have it the point is i wouldn't have it any other way no. but but i think it's important to ensure that people don't think that that it's there's some glamour behind it at mm. this point and it's hard yeah. you know but it's 
it's hard, yet it is the single most rewarding thing mm. I could do. And I wouldn't replace it with anything. So Good. Well, that's a, that's a good, yeah. that's good to know. The, the second question, when you look back at everything, so this can be personal, private, you know, uh, professional, I mean, what's the thing that you're most proud of? The, the, the thing that you, you've done over your career that you think, yeah, I did it. I'm really pleased but the way that, that went. It's my kids. <laughs> Just, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, that's the thing I'm most proud of is my children. Um, and my son is six. Mm. Uh, my daughter's eight. And they don't love it when I travel. And I travel quite a lot. Mm. But if you ask my children, why is your mummy not here? They will say, um, and my son's been saying this for the last two years, and he's not as eloquent when he speaks as my daughter is. Mm. He'll say, my mummy is in, you know, Lebanon or wherever it is, with mm. theory, she's refugees and she wants to provide everybody in the world with the same sort of education as I have. Mm. And if my when my son says that, I just think that, you know, <laughs> well, I don't need to say anything else. That's pretty good. Um, that's, that's pretty good. That's great. Yeah. What about professionally? Professionally? Mm. The thing that you're most proud what of? What I'm most proud of? Mm. Um, I'm, that's a really good question. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think I'm, I mean, today I'm, I'm most proud of my team mm. because I'd go to the end of the earth and back for any single one of them. They are mm. absolutely incredible. And here at Century, we know we're working in a tough sector. It's education. It's slow to change. You know that because of your wife, you know, when she mm. comes back and she might complain about what's going on and, and, and the burden of the workload, et cetera. Mm. The thing is the people here are top tier talent. They're the best in the world at what they do. And they've been recruited for that. Mm. But they all have this other common thread that they work beyond the betterment of themselves. And and so I'm most proud to have people around me, I said in a sense, who who believe in what we're doing. Um, and that's not just the team, you know, that's also extended because that's the head teachers and the teachers that we work with who are constantly feeding back on the product and mm. feeding back on what else we could be doing. And we take that incredibly seriously, and that's how any tech company works in a sense. Any good tech company is incredibly agile with you know in terms of feedback. Um, but yeah, I think I'm most proud of the people that I work with um, because I want to come to work every day, you know, in that crazy rush with no breakfast. And um, <laughs> they are, and uh, yeah, I mean, you know, and, and the product's great and it solves a real fundamental problem. Yeah, It really, really does. It really does help solve it. And, and, and all the data and the feedback tells you that. But, mm. you know, you could be building the best thing in the world, but if you're not building it with... Um, people that you absolutely adore and think that they are, you know, that they're much smarter than I am, um, then then it's not, you know, I don't, I don't think you can really succeed. Um, and so, I'm, yeah, so very, very blessed person because I'm very happy and very, very, very fortunate both, both personally and professionally. Good. And the final question then, uh, what are you uh, enjoying sort of creatively right now? So this could be like a book or music or TV show or something that you've seen or watched or heard just recently. What, what do what I enjoy creatively? What, right now, what are, you, um, what are you enjoying, like listening or reading to or, or watching? Oh, my God. I think I'm probably the saddest interviewee you've ever had in your <laughs> life. Um, <laughs> um, we're going through sort of scale phase at the moment. Not much time. Uh, so... I mean, you know, I just like the odd. We have movie night on Friday nights with yeah. my kids, yeah. and if I'll be honest with you, if I make it, <laughs> I yeah, because that's just life, and yeah. you know, um, I'd love to sound perfect. And I'm really far from perfect. Um, yeah, I love that. In terms of what else I enjoy, books. I love. Um, okay, 
So one of the best books I've ever read mm. is The Hard Thing About Hard Things. And I know, again, it sounds like a boring answer because it's not some novel. I don't read fiction. And right. that's, I'm going to get so many tweets after this saying, you know, you're such a loser and you know nothing. And I totally get it. I don't have time to read that right now. And I wish I did. Mm. Maybe one day, once we've solved the crisis in education and then in healthcare, I'll get around to it. The point <laughs> is, I love learning. The thing is, I love learning. And yeah. that's why I fundamentally love what we do here because this is the first machine, it's the first AI that makes us more intelligent. Mm. So I know the AI gets intelligent, but it makes the human more intelligent, right? Because it's yeah. it's trying to cut through the nonsense and differentiate for every individual. But um, but I love reading business books and learning from others. And yeah. so there's a bit called the hard thing about hard things. I've actually read it six times. I'm What's it called? New. The hard thing about what? Hard things about hard things, and it's by Ben Horowitz from okay. Andrews and Horowitz. And um, and basically I look at it. I read it every. I, I basically go back to it every month or so when I'm dealing with a really hard situation. And he expresses what the hard thing about hard things is really, really well. And you just feel like you're speaking to some sort of simpatico in terms of what you're going through in mm. entrepreneurship tonight. But other than that, it's just large films. I love the BBC's Bodyguard. I have to oh, admit, yeah. I'm a series. Yeah. yeah, that's how I actually managed to get to So it's just um, that sort of stuff. But um, yeah, other than that, I think, I mean, one day I'll have time to do a lot more sort of creative. <laughs> one day. <laughs> I don't know if I- well, I have to figure out, I'll go on holiday for about two weeks and then I'll be bored and then just think, right, um, I need to solve another problem. But I yeah. think that's the nature of most entrepreneurs that you meet, you know, yeah. sort of those entrepreneurs that just don't rest and they, you know, because there's so many things that we can improve. Yeah. There's so many things that we can fix, but it's not work for us. Yeah. And it is, it's challenging. It's purpose, right? Yeah. And that's the absolute difference is that if you found your purpose, you're not going to stop. And yeah, and it's about prioritising, it's about focusing, it's about making sure that... So between me and my problem of helping educators and children, there is a straight line and everything else is noise. Mm. So if that's if that's a very quick way of describing um, how, how, how dull an individual I might be. <laughs> <In terms> of, <laughs> one of these fun questions that you're asking me. Yeah. Well, no, that, that's a good answer, and it feels like a good place to finish. So Priya, thank you very Thanks, much guys. for speaking to me on the podcast. Much appreciated. Thank you.